Khair, everyone. Greetings from sunny Aswan in Egypt, where I am recording this latest episode of the Egypt Travel Podcast while I'm here with three different sets of clients who are touring Egypt with us right now. One of the clients in a small private group that I have here right now suggested the other day that I should do a podcast episode covering some common misconceptions about Egypt. And he did a great job of giving me a few starter ideas based on misconceptions that he and his sister and his fiance had about Egypt before they came. I met them for dinner in Luxor last week, and as they told me the things that they had assumed about Egypt but were surprised to find out were different once they arrived and began exploring the country, I realized that, Michael, you were exactly right. This topic needs its own podcast episode, maybe even a series of them. You know, despite all the info out there, like this podcast, EgyptTravelBlog.com, all the other resources on Egypt that we and others put out, and despite the millions of tourists that visit Egypt every year and return home to talk about how wonderful and surprising the experience was, there are still hundreds of millions of people out there who have certain conceptions and misconceptions about Egypt. And I'm always amazed at how off people's conceptions are about Egypt sometimes. Whether it's in regards to ancient Egypt, which wasn't even called Egypt, by the way, or the modern country, which also isn't really called Egypt either, by the way, Egypt remains a land of contrasts, misconceptions, and a lot of wonderful surprises. Let's start with the name, since I probably just confused you on that topic by saying that wasn't and isn't the real name of the country. In ancient times, the place we know as Egypt today was called Kemet. Egypt, as a name, was a later Greek creation. Aegyptos, which was derived from the Egyptian name for the city of Memphis, which was also a Greek name that we still use today for the ancient capital of Egypt, or one of them, but which had a different name in the ancient Egyptian language also, Hawatkapta, if anyone is interested, which meant mansion of the spirit of Ptah, an ancient god. So from Hawatkapta, the Greeks started saying Agipta, and of course they put an O-S on the end, O-S, because they put it on the end of everything, because, well, they're Greek. So we get Aegyptos, which was then picked up in Latin as Aegyptus, after the Romans took Egypt from Greece, and then Egypte in Old French. And now you can probably see where in English we get the word Egypt from. It wasn't the name of the country, but the Romans and the French and the English have been so globally dominant for the past 2,000 years, sailing around the world everywhere, telling everyone that this great country called Egypt exists. So the people here just rolled with it, and they still do. They're just like, sure, call us whatever you want, as long as you come see the pyramids and stuff, I guess. Similarly, when the Arab tribes from present-day Saudi Arabia invaded Egypt in the 600s and brought both the Islamic religion and the Arabic language to the area, they called the country Masr. And Masr remains the country's name today, in the actual native language of the people here. Not the indigenous language, but at least the current native language. So Egypt, that's basically the pan-European version of the country's name. Masr, that's the native Arabic version of the country's name. And Kemet is the original indigenous ancient Egyptian name for this country. Related to that is another misconception about Egypt. Many people here, especially in northern Egypt, aren't the same as the ancient Egyptians who built the pyramids and empires here thousands of years ago. Many modern-day people here are 
Arabs descended from the tribes across the Red Sea in the Arabian Peninsula, or from Turkish tribes to the north who came and settled during the long Ottoman occupation period. In fact, in the Delta region of Egypt, in the north, you can see many people who are very, very light-skinned, almost white, because they are of Turkish descent from Anatolia in modern-day Turkey, or even the Balkans in Europe or the Caucasus region, where the word Caucasian even originated. Those were all part of the Ottoman Empire as well, and domestic migration, domestic immigration in that country at the time, the Ottoman Empire, occurred, including to Egypt from those regions of the empire. In fact, Egypt's last royal family was ethnically Albanian. They were from the European part of the Ottoman Empire, and they became governors here when the Ottomans ruled Egypt, and then kings later when Egypt broke away from Ottoman control. And the last famous royal family before that, of which Cleopatra was a member, by the way, was actually Greek and Macedonian. They were from Europe also, which is actually really funny because in the remake of the famous film about Cleopatra, the Israeli actress Gal Gadot was cast to star as Cleopatra, and all these idiots in the West were screaming online about how dare they cast a non-African to play an African queen. But guess what? The irony is that these uneducated people who think they're so worldly and knowledgeable about Africa and Egypt were completely ignorant of the place's actual history. They were imposing their own assumptions and misconceptions onto Egypt and then screaming at others who were actually getting it right. Cleopatra wasn't African. She was of European descent from the Balkans. Her family was Macedonian. Her ancestors were the Ptolemies, who were generals of Alexander the Great. When Alexander died, the empire broke up. General Ptolemy became the ruler of Egypt, and then his direct descendants formed the Ptolemaic dynasty, which ruled Egypt until the last Ptolemaic uh, pharaoh, which was Cleopatra. She was European. That's just a fact. And Gal Gadot, the actress, being actually from the Middle East herself, she was way more ethnically diverse than Cleopatra ever was. Only in the very far south of Egypt, in what we call Upper Egypt, or Lower Nubia, do you see what are likely continuous lines of truly indigenous ancient Egyptians still inhabiting Egypt today. Although some would argue that the Coptic families in Egypt are very likely the next most closely related to the ancients, because they didn't mix and marry so much with the invading Arab tribes from Saudi Arabia that took over the country after the Muslim conquest in the 600s. Okay, so in sum here, Egypt is a foreign word used to refer to an ancient land called Kemet in the original Egyptian language, the indigenous Egyptian language. And modern Masr in the Arabic language is the Arabic word for Egypt. But quote-unquote Egypt, the word Egypt, is the commonly accepted word in English for the country. So Egyptians themselves actually accept and embrace it, at least in other languages. In addition to that, modern Egyptians are actually a mix of Arabs, Ottomans, Nubians, and more, in addition to indigenous, I guess you could say Kemites or Kemites, or whatever adjective the ancient Egyptian citizens of Kemet would, would have called themselves. I don't know. Kemites, I like that. No, Kemites. Kemites, I like that better. So now, let's go back nearly 5,000 years to ancient Kemet and talk about one of modern Egypt's greatest monuments, the pyramids. First, we honestly still don't truly know how they were built. There are theories, but they are just that. 
Most likely, the ancients used either long, winding mud brick ramps, but they just as easily could have used a material or technique that we haven't yet even imagined yet, or which currently isn't referred to or spelled out in any of the surviving pictorials or records. Second, the pyramids were most likely not built by slaves, but instead by local workers who were taking turns performing a period of national service to the state, i.e. the pharaoh, since the pharaoh back then was the state, and the state was the pharaoh, kind of like in, you know, medieval times. And since they didn't have an IRS or a currency back then to collect taxes, and the pharaoh didn't really need to collect a percentage of crops or meat that could spoil, the ancient Egyptian state often took taxes in the form of labor, and some of that labor was put to work building the final resting places of the god kings who ruled absolutely. How do we know this? Well, the best evidence comes from the ruins of the accommodations provided for the workers around the pyramid building sites and the remains of the food that they were fed in these areas. For example, precious meat would not have been wasted on slaves, yet the remnants of massive amounts of meat have been found amid the workers' villages surrounding pyramid construction sites. So it's more likely that the builders of the pyramids were more of a national service corps that was conscripted to work for the pharaoh for a period of time in exchange for the protection, both physical and divine, that he was thought to have provided them and for sustenance in the form of decent meat and bread and even beer. Ancient Egyptians invented beer, by the way. I should do another podcast episode on that because that's a really interesting topic. The ancient Egyptians invented a lot of really neat stuff that we use today still, and people don't even realize that it came from ancient Egypt. But now some of you may be also thinking, what about the aliens, though? Why would the History Channel and the Discovery Channel and the Clickbait Channel have all these TV shows about ancient aliens building things like the pyramids if there isn't any potential merit to these theories? Well, you can probably guess the answer to that yourself. Theories and shows like these are really fascinating and enthralling, and they get you to click links and watch shows for hours and hours on end late at night when you can't sleep. However, there isn't any evidence of anything supernatural in the building of Egypt's ancient monuments. All of them can plausibly have been built with ancient tools and sufficient manpower. And nothing unexplainable has been found at these sites. There are no radiation burn marks on the walls, no non-earthly materials integrated into anything. If extraterrestrials had anything to do with it, you would expect to find some sort of evidence of inexplicable phenomenon. But instead, all we find is evidence of immense hard work, careful planning, and really grand ambitions. Some people also mistakenly believe that the pyramids can't possibly be solid all the way through. There would have to be more than 2.3 million of these stones that weigh an average of 2.5 tons each for the largest of them, the Great Pyramid of Khufu, to be solid all the way through. Well, guess what? It is. And they all are, except for a very small open burial and storage chamber or two inside of some of them. How do we know this? Well, the simple answer here is because we can go inside them and see for ourselves. That, by the way, is another misconception about Egypt and the pyramids. Many people think you can't go inside of them, but you can. Several of Egypt's most famous pyramids, including the Great Pyramid, are continuously open for visitors to go into. In fact, you can walk through a narrow corridor all the way to the center of the pyramids and see the actual burial chambers in the middle of them. It would have been much harder, actually, for the ancients to have only filled in the huge stone blocks around the tunnels and the corridors and the burial chambers inside of the pyramids 
and then also on the exterior structure, and then left the rest empty just to intentionally fool conspiracy theorists watching the History Channel at 4 a.m. in the 21st century. We also know that the pyramids are solid structures because there are over a hundred of them left standing, and most of them are in states of collapse, such that we can see what's inside of them now because the insides are exposed. And guess what? The ones that are collapsing and falling apart are revealing their interiors to be solid stone all the way through as well. Another misconception about the pyramids is that the reward for duck walking through a hot, stuffy, narrow tunnel all the way to the king's burial chamber in the center will be some spectacular scenes like out of a movie. But in reality, the pyramids are blank inside and outside for that matter. Their magnificence is in their scale and size and the fact that the Egyptians of the Old Kingdom period were building these enormous structures 4,500 years ago while Europeans and North Americans were still living in caves and hunting and gathering. The fabulous, colorful artwork on tomb and temple walls didn't come until later. There was some primitive artwork on the temples in the Old Kingdom period tombs that were built at Saqqara, but for the most part, the colorful, vivid artwork that you're going to see on tomb and temple walls is going to be down in Luxor, where New Kingdom pharaohs built their amazing mortuary temples and final resting places in the tombs. One client of Egypt Elite here with us recently described the pyramids and the sites up at Saqqara and Dashur as if you're seeing the ancient world in sepia tones instead of vivid color. So remember, the Old Kingdom sites, the pyramids, the above-ground tombs are mostly going to be in sepia. They're blank. You don't see a lot of decoration, whereas the New Kingdom tombs and temples that you're going to see down in Luxor are going to be in vivid, bright, beautiful colors. And those were mostly, at least the tombs anyway, underground. Down there in Luxor, it's the dry air and the lack of rainfall and the protection from wind damage by being underground that has preserved most of that original vivid color in those New Kingdom tombs in the Valley of the Queens, Valley of the Kings, places like that down in Luxor, even some sites down in Aswan, tombs of the nobles down there. And even though the above-ground temples in Luxor were exposed to the elements for thousands of years, the areas that were least exposed, such as the underside of temple roofs, those areas still have a lot of that vivid original color that has survived to the present day as well. And the Egyptian government, the, the Antiquities Ministry, has been doing a lot of work over the past year to clean off the grit, the pollution, just the, the layers of sand and, what would you call it, just crap that has been covering a lot of that original color that's still left. So even if you, if you visited the tombs and temples, well, not the tombs, the temples in Luxor, Anytime before about six months ago, you were still seeing a very muted version of what you would see if you go now. If you go now, that they've been cleaning them off very carefully with very specific scientifically mixed chemicals, you know, under the supervision of scientists and researchers. If you go now, I've noticed even in the past year, post-COVID, a significant difference in the amount of color that has been brought out, that has been exposed, that has been cleaned off, uh, especially at places like Karnak and Luxor Temple, and some of the other temples in and around uh, Luxor in Upper Egypt. Now, finally, let's talk about the big elephant in the room, or at least in some rooms. For anyone who has been to Egypt now, we find it hard to believe that people in this day and age, in 2022, would still think that Egypt is not safe. That, to be honest, is such old school thinking by either those who, A, remember when the Middle East 
The whole Middle East used to be a powder keg in the 60s and 70s, but you know, so was the USA at that time to think about it. Or B, think that because something dicey is going on elsewhere in the region, that it must somehow make Egypt, a completely different country, unsafe also. As if perhaps drug violence in Mexico, which is part of North America, somehow makes Quebec, Canada, also in North America, a dangerous and dodgy place. No one would ever say, you know, I'm not going to visit Vancouver because there was a shooting in Miami. But that's what people sound like when they think that Egypt is unsafe because they heard on their favorite clickbait website or for-profit news channel that something sketchy was happening in another country where they also happen to speak Arabic far away. Similarly, Egyptians came out into the streets and demonstrated in crowds in 2011, and they toppled their government, which we now, in retrospect, call the Egyptian Revolution. Remember during the Arab Spring. But the same thing happened in the USA last year, though. And those trying to overthrow the American government actually succeeded in storming and occupying the legislature. And unfortunately, five Americans died. No one has ever stormed government buildings in Egypt during their revolution. And no Americans or other foreigners were ever killed and hurt during these events. Yet much worse has now happened in the U.S. And the U.S. has even had more people who have died of coronavirus than the total number of people in all of Egypt who've even gotten the sniffles from it. So if you're seriously concerned about safety, and safety concerns are a serious concern. I'm not making light of it. I'm putting it into perspective. You're honestly much better off getting on a plane, leaving the USA, and coming to Egypt because you're much safer in Egypt than you are in your home country. Crimes against foreigners are virtually unheard of here. The penalties for it are so severe that people don't even think about hurting a foreigner in Egypt. But in the U.S., there are many crimes against you in many places across the country that local governments don't even prosecute because they're so common, uh, doing so would overwhelm the courts there. In other words, it's practically legal for people in your own country to attack and harm you without repercussions. Whereas in Egypt, the punishment for even looking at a foreigner the wrong way is so severe that you're treated like a god-king pharaoh here. The absolute worst thing that will happen to you here in Egypt as a visiting tourist is that someone will try to rip you off when you buy something. They may charge you double what it really costs, or someone who brought you there may take half of that as a kickback. That's the worst that will happen with you in Egypt. And even that will only happen if you book your trip to and around Egypt with a scammy company, and if you don't listen to resources like the Egypt Travel Podcast and read the Egypt Travel Blog about these practices and how to avoid all of these scams. So on that note, I will bid you farewell again until the next episode of the Egypt Travel Podcast. Ma salama, everyone. 